You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Mike Rogers, a retired U.S. Navy Admiral, the 17th Director of the National Security Agency, and the second commander of U.S. Cyber Command. Welcome, Admiral Rogers. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast. Thank you, Vince. Pleasure to be here today. So I asked this question of most of our long career professionals to the point where the listeners make fun of me for it, but I think it's an important question, is that did you always want to be an intelligence officer? Was that something you'd planned from a kid? Had you read James Bond? Did you want to be a spook growing up? So the short answer in my case is no. The one concern for me was I always knew I wanted to be a naval officer. Um, I didn't come from a military family. I grew up in Chicago, long way from the ocean, you know, on the shores of the largest freshwater lake in the United States, but still. Um, but I read stories of the sea as a kid growing up, and I love the idea of service to something bigger than yourself, an ethics-based, you know, morally-based profession, concepts of right and wrong, the idea that as an officer you were about service to others and, and the men and women that you lead, and that you get to push yourself. I, I always like that. And I grew up uh, in a very working-class family, so uh, I tried to go to the Naval Academy. Like as I said, I literally told my parents when I was about 11 years old, just because of the books I read, hey, I'm going to, the, to be a Naval officer. I'm going to drive ships, and I'm going to go to the Naval Academy. Um, tried to get into the Naval Academy then as a you know 17-year-old out of high school. My grades just weren't good enough, so uh, failed miserably. Tried to get an ROTC scholarship. My grades weren't good enough, failed miserably, and I come from a very working-class family. My father's father, my grandfather, emigrated through Ellis Island in 1925. He was a coal miner in Wales, came to the United States at about age 19. My father and my mother never went, never graduated from college. My father worked four jobs when I was a kid growing up. I mean, he's the hardest-working guy right. I ever met. I've probably spent much of my adult life trying to meet the, the standard that I saw in terms of love of hard work and right. not pushing yourself. Um, and so... When I couldn't get into the Naval Academy, couldn't get a ROTC scholarship, I can still remember getting that letter back from the Academy in particular and opening it up, and I was just really down. And my father looks at me and goes, what are you upset about? And I said, well, Dad, all I ever wanted to do was go to the Naval Academy. He said, what's the goal? 
I, I want to go to the Naval Academy. What's the goal? I want to go to the Naval Michael, that's not the goal. The yeah. Naval Academy is a means to achieve a goal. What's your goal? I want to be a Naval officer. Excellent. Is there more than one way to be a Naval yes. officer? Well, gee, I hadn't really thought of it that way, Dad. So come on, Michael, snap out of it. Let, let's figure out what else you can do. If this is what you really want to do. And so I tried NRTC, failed, but I was able to get a, uh, what they called the college program. You don't get a scholarship. There's no guarantee of a commission at the end of the process. If they need you four years after you start, they'll give you a commission. It's a, at the time was a reserve, not a regular. But that's all I ever wanted to do. So I said, hey, I, I'm going for it. And then I did that for about a year. And then the professor of naval science said, hey, we'd like to offer you a full scholarship. Uh, you know, you get a regular commission right. at the end of it. We'll pay for your tuition. We'll give you a monthly allowance. Um, and at the same time, at the time, this is like the late 1970s. So we're starting towards the 600 ship Navy. A lot of, we're building a lot of nuclear vessels at the time. Yeah. And I went to Auburn University, War Eagle. And Auburn big engineering program. And so they were looking for engineers out of the ROTC unit. And so when they offered me the scholarship, they said, hey, look, the one proviso that we're going to give you is you got to have an engineering degree. Now, I'm a forestry major at the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they said to me, not much use for forest rangers at sea. Not Michael, so much. The not one so much. thing you got to give up, we really want you to be an engineer. And I said, you know, I'm not an engineer by background. It's probably one of the reasons my, my grades weren't so good. Um, I said, no. Uh, they came back, fortunately, and said, okay, how about a, a, a compromise? Would you be willing to do something that's acceptable to us but is not engineering? And I said, well, well that, what might that be? We ultimately agreed on business. The reason I say that is another lesson. So, number one, always focus on what's the goal and think about steps as to get there. Don't yeah. just fixate on the individual steps. Always think about what's the goal. What am I trying to achieve? Um, one of my second takeaways in life was, so – Stand firm for what you want. You know, I just thought to myself, look, I want to be a naval officer. It's all I ever wanted to be. But if the price of this is doing something that I'm not good at, I'm not going to enjoy, I'm going to have massive problems trying to get through it. I'm just not going to do it. And fortunately, it worked out for business. And then I get my commission. I am a ship driver. That's what I wanted to do. Right. Again, I want to be a naval officer. I want to be a sailor. I want to get out there. Uh, I loved it. And I did that for about, did first uh, three years on a brand new destroyer, a Spruance class destroyer, which is now a reef in the northern Puerto Rican <laughs> Opry. But uh, um, did that for about three years and then transitioned to shore duty and was going to get out, go back to Chicago where I grew up, met a, a, a young lady in a bar one night in D.C., very fortunate, you know, 35 years later, we've been married now for over, I think we're almost going to have our 34th anniversary later this year. I'm so lucky, so blessed to be with her. Um, and started thinking, so can you stay in the Navy, but maybe do something different? Right. And, and the reason for me was I love being a ship driver. But on the other hand, I saw some leadership traits that I really didn't like. Hmm. I just thought, look, if the price of gaining command of a ship, which is the ultimate for a naval officer, that is the ultimate. Command is the, the ultimate thing you are taught is always about what you want to strive for. If to become a commanding officer, the price is to engage in these behaviors I watched from some of the leadership right. in my community at the time. It's different now, but at the time, I, I just thought, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to compromise myself like that. Um, and so a little bit of serendipity in terms of how I get into intelligence and specifically cryptology 
So I'm on shore duty. I want to be a naval officer, and I want to go back to sea, but I don't want to do it as a surface officer. At the time, I'm stationed in Washington, D.C., which was where our personnel center was. I happened to work in that building. So one day I went to uh, three different disciplines within the Navy, public affairs, intelligence, and cryptology, or signals intelligence. Said to each of them, here's my background. This is my education. This is my experience. If I were to join your community or specialty in the Navy, what might I be used for? What might a career look like? And do you think that I kind of have the background that you're looking for? And I thought the, inter- the, re- the reaction of each of them was very different. Public affairs at the time told me, hey, uh, you know, Lieutenant Rogers, you don't have a degree in journalism, right. true. And you've never done journalism in the Navy. On my ship, my first ship, uh, I-, I wasn't the public affairs officer or anything. So I thought that was fair. I went to the intelligence arena, and I still remember them telling me, hey, we can't tell you what we do, but we get a lot of ribbons and decorations and a lot of recognition for what we do. And I just thought to myself, you clearly don't know Mike Rogers because I have zero interest in that crap. You know, I'm interested in challenging myself and trying to make a difference and in serving something bigger than others. I'm not interested in focusing on recognition. And then I went to cryptology, which the Navy's a little different. It is the one service that still has a career path, a dedicated career path for officer and enlisted purely in signals intelligence. So other services have evolved over time. We're the one surface that has stayed this way. Now that's largely a reflection of the past. When signals intelligence or cryptology plays a significant factor in one of the greatest naval victories our Navy ever enjoyed midway in June of 1942, your takeaway as a service from that tends to be, boy, this thing really seems to generate value for us we ought to invest in this thing. And right. we sustain that investment as a Navy, you know, over decades. Yeah, OP-20, G and Joe Rochefort. Exactly. Yeah. So very lucky. And so we're the one service that feels that there's enough value and that there's enough difference between signals intelligence and intelligence writ large, and it requires a level of dedication and expertise. So that, that specialty, again, I didn't know them. They could mm-hmm. have said to me, hey, thanks, but you got a business degree. We really like computer scientists, right. electrical engineers, linguists. Um, they said to me, hey, look, you, you did well on that first ship. It happened to have a cryptologic capability. I was cleared for it at the time. I had no clue that I would end up going down that way, but um, had worked with it. They said, hey, we think you got experience. We think you could do some good things with us if you're interested. Not only do we think um, you could do well potentially, but would you like any help writing your package? And I just mm. thought to myself, That's nice. now this is a team yeah. of people that I want to be associated right. with. It could have gone, the only reason I say that is, it could have gone a totally different direction for me. It, another lesson I have taken in life, the power of people in your life. Right. Just the way individuals can really make a difference. And that could have been, on a different day, you could have had different people to talk yep. to. It could have been completely different. It's really amazing. I wonder if you still have your uh, rejection letter from Annapolis. <laughs> Because when you got I, I, your fourth star, did you just kind of have, like, was that part of, like, like, oh, boy, did you screw up on this one, guys? Well, it is funny in that vein. Uh, have two sons. Love both of them. The eldest uh, is a naval officer. He went to the Naval Academy. Was very proud of the fact that he went to the Naval Academy. And that not only did he go to the Naval Academy and get into the Naval Academy, unlike his father, but he graduated towards the top of his class. Really intelligent guy. Goes on to be... A, a nuclear engineer submarine officer, mm-hmm. so he's a subsurface nuke. Um, when he graduates in 2011, I can still remember going at the time, I'm a three-star, I'm in uniform, I'm very proud, I'm there as a father. I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm a naval officer, but I'm there as his father, yeah. very proud. Um, and 
he is very proud, as he should be, but he's feeling his oats a little bit. And he says something to me like, you know, Dad, I just want to remind you, hey, I did something you weren't able to do. You got unable to get me. And I, I had a, a major in engineering, and I did really well. I said, all of that is true, and I'm very, very proud of you. But as I turn, to my, I'm, I'm in my whites as I point to my shoulder boards. But let's see where you are in 30 years, yes. smartass. <laughs> And it's sir to you, <laughs> or Admiral Rogers. No, it's yeah. always dead. Yes. Always dead. One thing I find really fascinating about talking to, we've talked to multiple former directors who have just basically left, you know, retired within the last couple of years. And because of the age of people retiring now, there's been a wonderful arc of career over multiple different bad guys, multiple <laughs> different potential adversaries. And kind of think of the transformation of the battle space from the early 1980s where just about everybody in the United States Navy was focused on the Soviet threat. You know, this is granted when the Soviet Union is beginning to collapse, but certainly we're not knowing that in 81 and 82 and 83. And then, of course, the transition of the 90s where no one knows what the hell is going on. And you you were doubly whacked by the peace dividend. Not only the DOD gets slashed its budget, but obviously the intelligence community as well. And then the transformation post 9-11. Can you talk a little bit about kind of having to almost relearn the job, or did you, or did it just kind of business as usual? Now, there's a part B to this question. I can tell you it now if in case you want to in integrate it. You become not only a cryptanalyst, but later fully immersed in cyber, the head of cyber mm -hmm. command, as I just mentioned. Did you immediately understand the transformative impact of the internet, which happened along the way? Or was it something that took a little bit longer? Because there's a reason that you became a four-star admiral in the head of the NSA, because you appreciated this and understood this better than most of your peers at the time. So let me, uh, let me take that in two parts. Mm -hmm. So the first part. So I gained my commission in 1981, surface warfare officer, transitioned to cryptology or signals intelligence in 1986, um, ultimately retire in 2000 18 at about 37 years. So like you said, I really break my career down into three different phases. The first was at the height of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. um, so I was there, you know, as we were confronting our Soviet friends around the world, as the wall came down, as we watched the former Soviet Union implode in many ways. Um, and yet, even though I spent all of that time preparing both as a surface guy to to fight them and also as an intelligence professional to understand them. I was always struck by at the time, but if you look at what I actually did, El Salvador, Grenada, Beirut, Libya, as much as we were focused on, mm -hmm. on, on the Soviets in the height of the Cold War, I, I, I found myself shooting at a lot of non, yeah. <laughs> in some cases, a lot of non-Soviets in different, uh, a lot of non-Russians in a lot of different places. Then, you know, uh, 1990, we get into the peace dividend, but you still have uh, the Iraqi invasion of right. Kuwait. Um, well, that's where you found yourself into kind of one of the early leadership positions, or at least supporting leadership positions as one of the top officers for Desert Storm or... Well, no, no. no not, I, I don't want to top officers, but no, you were I supporting. I wouldn't say. Um, and, <coughs> you know... 
So then I'll just finish the thought. So then the second phase of life is, you know, from about 1990 to 2001, this little bit of uncertainty as we're all trying to figure out, so what's the world going to look like now? What's the role for the military? What's the role for intelligence? What's the role of the Navy in all this? Um, And you watch the Balkans. We we got the Iran-Iraq, Iran-Iraq, War really is at the end of the 80s. Again, I got sent out and immediately after the Stark mm-hmm. got hit. She got hit with two X's. That's in June of 87. So I get sent out for the tanker wars. Um, was out there for, um, you know, a, a while on combatants in the Gulf in the midst of the escorting tankers and shooting up Iranian oil platforms. And part of an operation, watched a sink an Iranian, actually watched an Iranian frigate go down at sea back in the 87, 88 um, time frame, something like that. And then in the 90s, we're all trying to figure out, so where is it going? Right. Get the Boltons, the Balkans. And interesting to me, you see the Army start to transition from a garrison force that it had been really during the Cold War to now, interestingly, it's being used in a much more expeditionary kind of thing, first in the Balkans, but then you see it in the Middle East. Counter-narcotics becomes really big. So you find uh, the Navy and intelligence really supporting a counter-drug mission for the first time in a big, significant way in the 1990s. Um, But it's still very, except for the drug problem, I would argue it's still very Mm nation-state focused. And then September the 11th um, happens. At the time, I was on the Sixth Fleet staff stationed on the the USS LaSalle in Gaeta, Italy. Sixth Fleet is the Navy's warfighting fleet that's focused on operations in Europe um, on the other side of the Atlantic, as well as the Mediterranean, the Black Sea. We had just come back from being in the Black Sea, had just been in Russia, as a matter of fact, for the first time in my life. Actually did a couple of port calls into Russia, and it was a different time then. Um, And 9-11 happens, and suddenly everything changes again. And now it's all about, so how are we gonna confront this non-state actor Mm -hmm. How is intelligence going to generate insight and knowledge about a terrorism challenge that's kind of global in nature, but also has some very specific manifestations in Afghanistan, Iraq, elsewhere? Um, you watch how we how we played there. We find ourselves in two ground campaigns as a military in both Afghanistan and Iraq, trying to figure out how intelligence plays with that. So I found a very rewarding career in no small part because it wasn't the same thing. Right. It kind of broke itself into three different chunks, and each chunk was different, but each built on the other. And so now as I look back over 37 years, having just retired about you know nine months ago, I'm struck by, in some ways, the world is starting to trend back to the world I knew when I was an ensign. State-on-state conflict, um, a large military component to this potentially, um, asking yourself, so how do you successfully defeat if required? You hope it never happens. Mm-hmm. But if required, how do you potentially defeat a peer, near peer, or in some areas, you know, someone who actually, not just a peer competitor, but also in some areas actually has outright advantage. Right. That, that's a totally different approach. Right, so it's been a while since some ways, right. Actually, I yeah. find myself, and I would say this, you know, when I was still a naval officer, particularly a cyber command, look, in some ways, it's going back to the way it was. So let's pull out some of those lessons. And I still remember that people often ask me, I got asked this in my retirement. So what was the most 
formative tour that you ever had in the military in 37 years. Well, I'll be honest, it wasn't the last. It was the very first one. Hmm. That first ship in the height of the Cold War that not only did we do that, but we did all those other things. The lessons I learned was in combat on that tour at a time when most people weren't. It you know, was post-Vietnam. Um, but did combat time in that tour really learned a lot about, so what is it like to lead individuals in these high-stress, high-risk environments where the price of failure is incredibly high and you're engaged in operations where you are not only taking human life, but potentially if you don't do this well, if you don't do it right, you could lose right. you know, life on your own team. And that's not what you ever want to have happen. The second part of your question, really, you, you talked about you know, importance of the internet, importance of cyber. So like I said, started as a ship driver, did that for about five years, 81 to 86, got into this very specialized intelligence field of cryptology or signals intelligence. Did that from 86 until I retired in 2018. But right around the, the turn of the century, the 20th century into the 21st. Uh, anybody thinking it was, yes. the, it was the 19th and the 20th. <laughs> um, I can remember thinking to myself, the digital communications background of the world is transitioning to a world of the network. And the spectrum and the network, are, you can see the way this is going. They're going to start to merge. And as I was looking at the World Wide Web, I can remember thinking, in the world of the network, cyber is going to raise in importance and dominance and therefore mike you better stop and think about mm -hmm. how do you get skill and experience in that world of the network now at this time it's so now it's like 2001 i'm rolling off that very traditional war fighting tour on a numbered fleet staff on the uss LaSalle com 6 fleet in guy to italy and i can remember i approached my detailer in the navy that's the administrative officer who's assigned for distributing personnel and i approached that individual and i say I think the future is really about cyber, and I need to get some experience there. And I can remember being told at the time, uh, well, the, and at the time I was trying to get my joint payback so I could get joint qualified as an officer. Um, and so I very quickly was rolling out of, uh, from Sixth Fleet, I went to the National War College. I'm getting ready to roll out of the National War College. Now I gotta do my payback, so I gotta find a three-year shore tour somewhere where I can actually get joint credit now that I've got my joint education. Um, and I approach that detailer and say, hey, look, I, I really need to get into cyber. And they tell me, ah, you're in 06 now. I just put on 06, uh, you know, captain or colonel in the other services. There's really nothing available uh, for 06s when you're rolling. The only jobs we have are for 05s. And I said, fine, I'll take an 05 slot. I remember the detail telling me, that's not good for you professionally. Right. You, you realize that by going a, a pay grade down, that's going to send a bad signal to a selection board. And I can remember thinking, number one, having sat, I had been a detailer myself. I had been a, a career manager. Um, I had sat on tons of boards, which do promotions. I can remember thinking, boards don't look at that all right. that much, number one. Number two, I could care less. I'm not doing this because I want to be promoted. I'm doing this because I think it's important, and I want to be relevant, and I want to be able to make a difference. And to do that, I think I can do that best by expanding my skill set and experience. So get me into cyber and I don't care that it's a, a pay grade below my current one. I'll be responsible. I take full responsibility. You can put that on my record if you want. I, I'll acknowledge you advised me not to do right. this, but 
I'm going to do it. So another trend for me along the way, I, I like to listen to other people, but in the end, my attitude always was, it's my career and right. nobody else's, and I'm going to drive this. I'm going to management. I'm going to do what I think is the right thing to do. And it wasn't because it was from a promotion. In the Navy that I joined, that career field I'm in of cryptology, we had one admiral. We picked one admiral every three years. That person became a one-star then they became a two-star. They didn't even compete against anybody else. They automatically got promoted to two-star, and then they went home. Right. So I knew both the odds were against it because there were only one of them. And then number two, you're going to do it for one tour, two tour, and then you're going to go home. So that was never a, a thought in my mind. And then uh, I was very fortunate. That tour led me on a whole different road, and that is really the transition point where suddenly the potential of – some of the kinds of responsibility I got later start uh, to become more visible, although I didn't know that at the time. Was it a bit pulling teeth? I mean, obviously there were some people within the Navy and the military that understood the transformative nature of cyber, but in a broad sense, the military writ, writ large, the Navy writ large, was there an understanding at that point, the turn of the century, that this was going to be I, such a key component moving forward? I thought there was intellectual acknowledgement but the true implication of, so you're willing to shift resources? Are you willing to realign strategy? Are you looking at changing your human capital to reflect some of this? Mm -hmm. Not there yet at the time. Right. Uh, the, mean, the, the 09s and the 010s and the JCS and the Chiefs, they're all former boat drivers or they're fighter pilots. They're not necessarily computer savvy. Right, well, it doesn't, I yeah. mean, it doesn't make them bad. No, no, People, I'm but, saying they just. Right, to show you yeah. how at the time on the joint staff, so this is 2002, um, the only, quote, cyber jobs, one's in the J3 and one's in the J6. And just the way I'm wired, I'm going, I want to go to the J3. Mm -hmm. Ops is what I, I, I'd been an operational guy as a surface warfare officer. Um, it, it was the side of the Navy, even as an intelligence professional, that I always really enjoyed. And quite frankly, if you look at my career, even though I had positions of intelligence responsibility in every one of those operational tours, I actually got used as an operational watch stander. So I was a battle watch captain at Six Fleet. I was a staff mm. tactical action officer at Six Fleet. I mean, at, at Car Group 2, my carrier group tour on the John F. Kennedy Battle Group. Because I love that as much as I enjoyed being an intelligence professional as a cryptologist or SIGINT individual, I also really loved the operational world. And even though I had, quote, left it, my part of me was always there, and my boss was always kind enough to give me the opportunity. Well, that's to what you straddle, wanted to do as a kid, right? Right, you was to, to be... straddle both worlds. Yeah. I was really, which, again, paid off for me um, because oftentimes I get asked, well, how'd you wind up, you know, as a combatant commander? And I'm going, quite frankly, not just because I was an intel professional, because I was able to straddle mm -hmm. these two worlds in some ways, and that's what cyber is. It straddles these two worlds. And then... You know, from that experience, 2002 on, I, I tried to continue to get, you know, greater experience, knowledge in cyber. I was able to apply it at, at more increased levels of responsibility. It was just a great ride. I was very, very lucky. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. 
Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contain threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. You're seeing the public becoming more and more educated about this world, not only about cyber, but also about intelligence overall. I mean, if you look at the front page of a newspaper since 2001, there's going to be some kind of an intelligence-related story. And every page and then a museum like, museum like ours wouldn't exist if there wasn't right. public interest. I, I want to wonder about the communications with the public. It, trying to – obviously, there's this, this paradox between a secret government agency mm-hmm. and at the same time wanting to make sure the public has a basic understanding of what's done. Um, NSA used to jokingly stand for no such agency – now there's a sign on the Baltimore Washington Parkway, an NSA next right. It's obviously come out of the shadows a little bit. And a lot of some of this was due to your predecessors, but you certainly brought it uh, as well out of the shadows into somewhat the limelight. Is it enough? Is there enough understanding about the American public about what, let's specifically talk about NSA does, um, that you can get their buy-in into what you're doing or, or I, I, are we at the right place in that line? I mean, there's obviously follow-up questions to this, but we'll just start with that. So I, I think clearly part of being an intelligence professional in the 21st century is you must be capable of articulating mm-hmm. what you do. Now, how you do it a little different, but what you do and why you do it, you have to be able to articulate that in a way that non-intelligence professionals, non-cleared individuals, non-government people can understand. Because as I used to say to the workforce at NSA, don't ever forget, we serve the citizens of this democracy, not the other way around. Mm. We're here for them. And those citizens have entrusted us with great resources. They budget us in the billions of dollars. That is not an insignificant uh, level of investment. They entrust us with great capabilities, and they allow us to engage in a series of activities that if they were misused— could potentially harm or threaten the privacy and the rights of our citizens. I said, guys, that's, that's the power of a democracy. Our citizens are willing to do that. Mm-hmm. But the flip side is we have to help them understand. So just what is, is it we're allowing you to do? Right. How are you spending these billions of dollars? What are you focused on? How are you generating value? How are you ensuring the protection of my rights and my privacy? Why should I be comfortable with what you're doing? I think those are all very important and very legitimate questions from the citizens of the nation we defend and from our friends and allies around the world. And as intelligence professionals, we've got to be capable of doing that. And so one of the things, you know, as I came into the job, um, so I become the director of NSA, the commander of Cyber Command, April of 2014, on the first director to come in in the aftermath of Snowden. That clearly was part of the, chal- of the you know, tasking I received from the president and the secretary of defense and the DNI. Um, 
And I can remember thinking, hey, one of the implications of all this to me is we have to be willing to have a broader dialogue with our citizens. Now, the, the challenge always is I was always very comfortable talking about what we do. It was the how we do it right, that I was. This is where it gets to be hard. Yeah. Because if we start to publicly talk about the how we do it, then those who would do harm to our nation will gain insight. Mm -hmm. They'll harness the power of this global inter interconnectivity we have, where what one person says in one place publicly becomes global knowledge to anybody who wants to pay any attention to it. Um, and we do know that our opponents pay great attention to what happens in our testimony, what happens to the public documents that, mm -hmm. that, that we submit, to what goes up on our websites, to what we post to help inform our citizens. So you're always trying to figure out what is the right balance. And the balance for me always was, to, again, to the men and women at the National Security Agency, who I was just honored to be part of that team, we should feel very comfortable talking about what we do, and we should talk more about it. What we need to be careful of is don't compromise the how right. we do it. I mean, it's all uh, sources and methods right. idea. Of and, you know, one of the lessons, if you look back at the Snowden thing, you know, as I replay the tape, again, I wasn't there. I wasn't part of that. But it's a highlight to me of had we been a little more open about what, again, we were complying with a law. Right. I'm going, look, this law was passed by the elected representatives of our citizens. It was passed, not once, but was passed and renewed, so twice before June of 2013. And yet, for a variety of reasons, we made the decision at the time not to communicate about, so what does this law enable us to do? What are we doing? Um, this really was the call data record to the whole public yeah. telephone thing, <clears throat> which, you know, as I look back and said, have we just been very transparent and talked about this? We, we might have been able to diffuse some of this this whole issue in the end. But I, I'm not trying to throw stones at right. anybody. You know, I wasn't there at the time, but it's just what tried to shape my time, the four plus years that I was the director. You can also see with a lot of the confusion of even the Snowden stuff and that came afterwards is the public didn't understand the concept of metadata. The public didn't understand how FISA worked. I mean, we tell people all the time, I, I, you hear it from very prominent people. FISA is just a, 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 you know, a rubber stamp. It's like, well, okay. Let's take a step back and let's talk about the process because people just don't get it. And then the metadata concept, right? Well, they're listening to our phone calls. N no, they are in certain circumstances if they go through this, to right. this, and this, and this, and this. And I think that that's something that I think was a mistake. And I'll admit it, this is before your time. I think it was a mistake not to get ahead of it and say, like, this is real information that Snowden released. And here's how it's different than what the press is portraying it at and as what Glenn Greenwald is portraying it at and all the things is this is what metadata collection is. This is what PRISM was doing. This is what, you know, FISA does. And there's still arguments about FISA right. today. And I will say our citizens should feel really good about the job the FISA court does. Mm -hmm. It is not a rubber stamp. Right. I mean, yeah. the amount of data at times, the multiple conversations that we would have to have with the court to get their permission, they would not just sit there and rubber stamp. Yep. It was very much so we want to make sure we understand that. You're asking us to grant you permission to do the following. So walk me through why we should be comfortable with this. Walk me through why this is the only method you're telling me that you can have to do this. Walk me through the safeguards that you're going to put in place for any inadvertent collection you're going to run into on American citizens. And we would go back and forth. And it was a lot of work, but in the end, I always thought, hey, this is the way the system is supposed right. to work. We shouldn't get a blank check to do just whatever we want. 
We should be able to make a case. We should be able to generate confidence. And we should be granted authorities for specific purposes for specific periods of time. And the work we're doing should be continually reviewed. And there should be a high level of oversight. That is incredibly important. Well, and that's just a year ago, I believe, Edward Snowden tweeting from an undisclosed location in Russia basically said, 99% of Pfizer requests are approved. This is, this is a rubber stamp. And of course, there were tens of thousands of people that liked it and all that. And, re- and that, that's ridiculous. And I think that there's a perhaps um, a, a disconnect between the average person and understanding exactly what you just said, that there is this back and forth, that you know now based on years and years and years of knowledge in the national security community knows, but the years and years of knowledge what will actually get through a FISA court. Right, because yeah. uh, another point to make is, look, I would have never asked the court to do something right. I knew that they were going to say no to. Yeah. My attitude is I'm not here to waste the court's time, and I'm not here to waste our time. So let's be smart. Because the court clearly – and the, the law gives us a legal framework. The court and the interaction helps us understand the court's thinking. It helps us understand – what they find acceptable, what they find unacceptable, what makes them uncomfortable. And so we would always try to make sure that what we were doing reflected that, both within the law, but also to reflect the concerns of the judges based on our interaction with them, where they said, now, you know, if you ask me to do this, here's the things I'm going to want to specifically have insight on. So I never felt like this is a rubber stamp right. and, and we, you know, the National Security Agency could just do anything we want or run anything by the court. And the FISA court was automatically mm-hmm. going to say yes. I never I right. never felt that way. Do you differentiate between a leaker or a whistleblower that's a well-meaning person and somebody purposely trying to do us harm? Is there a difference between a reality winner and shadow brokers? Is there a difference between a Thomas Drake who was considered an insider threat by you know, the ODNI and someone like Edward Snowden? Is there, in your mind, a separation of those? So two? I won't get any specifics, but no. the first point I would make is whistleblower Right. is a well-defined legal term right. in writing by statute and policy that specifically defines what a whistleblower is. A whistleblower is, by definition, not every individual who decides they disagree or don't like right. something and chooses to remove data and provide it to others. Whistleblower specifically talks about fraud, waste, abuse, illegal. It's very specific. Whistleblower... The statute and the policies also specifically highlight, and there is a process when you find that you see activity, that you believe falls into those kinds of categories, fraud, waste, abuse, illegal. The statute provides the means for you to bring that to the attention of authorities and not receive reprisal for doing so. Mm -hmm. Whistleblower is not the same as someone who says, you know, I just fundamentally don't agree with this. Doesn't matter if it's fully legal. Doesn't matter if it has oversight. Doesn't mean if it's controlled by a court. Hey, I just don't like it. I don't agree with it. I don't think it's appropriate. That's not a whistleblower. Right. Um, Likewise, someone who says, you know, I don't like a particular administration or I don't agree with a particular policy and I'm going to use my access to to access data that I believe will undermine them. That's not a whistleblower. Mm -hmm. So I, the first thing I always say to people is, can we be very specific about what a whistleblower is and what a whistleblower is not? Right. Because the removal of sensitive classified information for many of the purposes you just talked about, that's a crime. It's not a whistleblower. That is a crime. It is criminal activity. 
you know, part of the thing I always would tell the workforce when I was a director was, I expect you to be a professional and let's talk about what it means to be a professional. If you observe activity that you believe to be illegal, immoral, or unethical, as a professional, I expect you to say something about it. Put another way, if I find out later that you were aware of such activity and you said nothing, I will hold you accountable every bit as much as if you had abused the authority that you've been granted because that's part of being a, a professional. We not only don't engage in that kind of illegal or inappropriate behavior, but when we observe it in others, we raise it, we highlight it, we say, hey, look, I think there's an issue here. Right. That's part of being a professional. And I always wanted people, please be professional. If you see something like that, that you truly believe, say something. You've got inspector generals you can go to, both within your agency, the DNI. Um, you can go to the attorney general. You can go to your congress, congressman or woman if, if you want. There's a lot of options you have available to raise issues to ensure appropriate attention is being paid. But unilaterally deciding, I don't agree with this, I don't like this, I know what's best, hey, I don't care what the law says, I don't think they should be doing this, and just inappropriately removing data and then sharing it broadly and losing control of it, I have zero place for that. Mm -hmm. That's not being professional to me. Right. Are you, you know, confident please that the, stand up for what you yeah. believe, but can't you use the structure that is designed to afford you protection? Why don't you try that? The, these right. individuals who do that without even trying that, that just really frustrates me you, where I'm going, so you decided that you're the judge and the jury on this, and you never even tried to use the structures that have put in place to protect you, and you didn't trust anyone around you. I mean, that, that's the issue. I think that you know most of the people since Thomas Drake haven't even attempted to use the whistleblower process. There's been a straight go to the press and not through, I mean, the process may not work all that well, but you can't, it, you can't use that as an excuse. Well, I would say never please tried it in the first try place. the process yeah. first. Yeah. Let me, let me ask you an interesting question that I, I, I find, especially with the NSA when you're, or Cyber Command, when you're talking about a workforce that tends to be younger, a workforce that tends to be more creative, because they're creating things or making things or working on code. Is there a fear in the future or when, while you were NSA director of, of a, a brain drain of, of security and creativity being mutually exclusive and kind of tamping down the natural inclination of 20-somethings, kids these days, uh, to want to be more open? Um, the internet was kind of designed as this open platform, and much in the same way. I, I mean, my, my background is nuclear intelligence, and I look at the, the early 1950s, late 1940s, mm -hmm. when all the scientists, the physicists who created the atomic bomb, were all calling for the inter internationalization of atomic energy, and they're all scientists who knew people from around the world. The internet is this kind of this big global environment where a lot of the top programmers that you have at NSA probably might think that it's more of an international versus a U.S.-centered platform. So I, I think that points out a couple things. Number one, it shows the obligation of an organization to have a very direct conversation with its workforce. Mm -hmm. Hey, let's make sure we all understand what we do, why we do it, and why we put the restrictions in place we do. We should all understand that, and we should be very upfront with each other about it. Because if you're joining the organization, I want you to understand its ethos, I want you to understand its culture, and quite frankly, I want you to understand your, your responsibility to ensure that the capabilities, the data, the knowledge that you are given access to, which if put in the wrong hands could do serious harm to our nation 
and could potentially be used against the citizens of our country, you need to understand that we, your employer, have a responsibility, but you, the individual, have a responsibility. And it's both of us working together is what makes this work. And the only way to do that is have a very upfront conversation with the workforce over and over again about the why, mm -hmm. help to educate them. Also, that way that gives you a chance to get feedback from them about, well, we understand that, but here's some concerns we have. Or this is why we see disconnects. You say this, but we see the following kind of activity in the workplace, and we don't understand how that really ties to that ethos or that culture, those values that you've been talking to us about. I love those kinds of conversations. Right. I was like, that's what professionals do. That, that's what I did with my bosses when I saw activities or behaviors that I disagreed with that I thought was inconsistent. I thought that's what I owed the Secretary of Defense. That's what I owed the President of the United States the director of national intelligence, our congressional oversight, I thought, well, I gotta do the exact same thing. Doesn't matter if you're the director or you're a brand new employee, we've all got a responsibility and we've all gotta be professionals and make sure that we're doing the right thing the right way. Um, so it's interesting that as you look at people joining the workforce today, um, first go back to that journey in time you look at NSA, we, big growth for NSA in the 1980s is part of the Reagan buildup. Hired a lot of workforce then. A lot of those individuals who had been in the workforce during the um, you know, middle of the Cold War and the Vietnam era were starting to retire in the 80s. And so we were hiring tons of people in the night. We were growing Reagan defense buildup. We, we were growing people, so we hired a lot of individuals. Well, you look, step back now, it's 37 years later. So many of those individuals are either eligible for retirement or they will be in the near term. Mm -hmm. So you find, and it's not unique to NSA, I bet you would find this in most intelligence organizations. You got a fair amount of the organization that will be retiring in the near term. And so the, you're always trying to bring new people in but now you're gonna bring even more. And if you look at, I won't go into the numbers, but if you look at NSA's hiring figures starting last year, my last year in the job, as well as now and moving forward, the organization is hiring at all time highs mm -hmm. um, in part as part of this. Right. Uh, not because we're it, NSA isn't growing per se, but we're in a transition period where a lot of our workforce is starting to, to retire and, and age out. And then the second phenomena is much of the workforce that wasn't with us starting from the 1980s, we also hired a lot of individuals in the post 9-11 environment. Right. So the world that they've known has been largely, not totally, but largely shaped by the non-state actor, by terrorism and by other challenges. Arabic linguists and Farsi right. linguists. So and, now you yeah. find that work, that workforce having to be part of a broader intelligence community as well as NSA. But as the broader government steps back and asks itself, so what's the world of today and the future like versus the world of the last 10 or 15 years? Hey, the nation state is growing in importance again. We've got near peer and peer competitors in Russia and China. We've got you know, nations attempting to develop nuclear capability in many instances, specifically focused on negating U.S. capability or potentially being employed against key U.S. friends and allies around the world. So you've got a set of challenges now that are, that are starting to become a little different. So that also affects what kind of people you're hiring, what kind of skill sets, what kind of experience, a, a little different. Bottom line, though, to me always was the constant, though, is service to the nation, doing something that's bigger than yourself, doing it in a way that fully complies with the law and the policies that frame what we can do and how we do it at the National Security Agency. 
the willingness to take on responsibility and challenge at a relatively junior junior level. Our view is we'll commit up front to giving you the kind of training you really need. And then as we watch you employ that training and, and gain experience, we want to start to give you more responsibility early. Um, and then lastly, the, the one advantage, because we're not going to compete when it comes to money. Mm-hmm. The other advantage in addition to those things I already mentioned was that I never tried to hide from this. We're going to let you do things here that legally you cannot do anywhere else. Now, we're fully compliant with the law, but we're going to let you do things you can't do anywhere else. Right. And they're the kinds of things that both generate great security for our nation, but they write movies about some of the things. I know this is a wonderful twinkle in your eye when you're talking uh, about this. (laughs) When when you're on the inside and you look at some of the things that that the team does, you're just like, wow, you know, I've seen that, but (laughs) watching you. So, well, I mean, that, I mean, that's true across the board, I guess, when it right. comes to unique, government work. Right. It's not unique, yeah, I mean, but NSA, NSA does a, intelligence. an extraordinary job of, of being able to kind of get that point across of talk about the cutting edge, right? I mean, you right. can do things, not like you can do things, but you're looking at technology that is so far beyond what you right. might find in, in a lot of private I mean, the sector. positive for NSA is we are an incredibly toka, we are an incredibly technically focused organization focus particularly on communications and other digital activities in the middle of a world that is increasingly gone digital. Mm -hmm. So as you look at the challenges out there, and there are many, you also, I think, have to say to yourself, wow, NSA is really optimized for this 21st century world that we find ourselves in. Now, remembering what we do is always within a legal framework that respects the rights of our citizens, their privacy, and the authorities that we're granted. but, and I'm not trying to argue NSA is better or, you know, that, that's not what I mean. Or more important, that's not what I mean. Now, it's bigger. It is the largest. Of the mm-hmm. 17 elements of the U.S. intelligence organization, it is the largest. And it is almost twice the size of, of, of anybody else, yeah. of the biggest one after us. Now, we're not the biggest in budget. So another thing I always used to tell our congressional friends, as well as uh, the, the director of national intelligence, and we give you great value for the dollar. Yeah, well, you're not putting satellites up in space. We give you great value for the dollar. <laughs> so we already talked about the idea, the, the challenge of, of communicating with the public about what NSA does and what the intelligence community does and really what uh, cyber is. I, I wonder about dissemination in the other direction. I, I've seen you uh, multiple times giving congressional testimony, whether it was big picture congressional testimony. And you're still willing to talk right, to exactly, me right? after all that and, testimony. Um, so when I see members of Congress say things like, we need to be concerned about the cyber and clearly have trouble turning on computers, and when you look at kind of policymakers who are being asked to make policies about things they have no idea about, uh, how is that more difficult than perhaps talking to the public is to, to convince policymakers that they need to pay attention to something that maybe they don't understand very well? No, I, I always thought, I, I, I think you... You know, number one, uh, I always had great respect for our congressional oversight. I thought the majority of them were always trying to do uh, their duty to the best of their ability and the way that they believed was appropriate for their duty. Now, I didn't always agree with all of them, nor did they always agree with me, nor should they. That's not the way a democracy works. Mm -hmm. Um, The only thing I ever asked was the commitment I make to you, I will always be honest. I I will always be truthful. Um, and I was, oh, will always fully comply with congressional direction, absent some legal direction, do not to. Um, the one thing I always asked was, 
can you be honest? Can you be forthright? Can you be professional and be direct with me? Because I will do that with you. Right. And then, hey, there'll be areas we disagree. I certainly understand. But in the end, your role is to set the league, create the legal framework that we employ. Your role is to allocate the resources that we use. We can't do that. That is up to you. Um, your role is also to provide oversight so that you acting in the, at the behest of the citizens of the nation that we both serve, you as our oversight have knowledge of what we're doing, are assessing what we are doing, both in terms of its complying with, with the law, its effectiveness, its maximization of resources like money and people. Um, so Congress has an important, important role to play. I always thought when you, can't, when you went down, when you talked to them, when they would come out to Fort Meade, I, I never worried about, you know, I, I thought one of your implications was ignorance. It's my characterization. I, I never really experienced that. I always thought they were willing to listen and they were willing to talk to them. And the other point I make is what you see publicly isn't always the same right. thing as privately. Exactly. It's amazing at times how different the dynamic is when the cameras aren't on. Closed hearings dramatically uh, different. Than it before. doesn't mean you always agree when the cameras yeah. aren't on. That's not what I mean. But it's very much about, okay, let me make sure I understand, Admiral Rogers, what you're telling us, because we, we have some concerns. You know, How would you address the following things, which is the way it should be? I mean, they have an incredibly important role, and the citizens of our nation are entrusting them with a great responsibility. I'm, I, as a citizen myself, I welcome that. I always right. thought it was in our nation's best interest and if it proved to be at, at times a little irritating my attitude was roger suck it up because that's what you're getting paid to do so let's focus on how we generate outcomes and stop wasting our time about complaining not that i ever really um, had major complaints although i certainly found some of the televised hearings i found myself at times uh, particularly in the last couple of years <laughs> yeah. a little interesting yeah no that, that, like i said you've you've been on tv once or twice and some interesting hearings um, I want to ask you about one of the challenges and perhaps one of the benefits, it's kind of a mixed bag, is the public-private partnership between NSA and, the, and the, the private community. Obviously, there were connections with telecom companies going back to the PRISM days, but I'm thinking more about high technology, about partnerships, about the, the, the benefits in being able to have one of the greatest telecommunications, you know, engineering, technological prowess here in the United States at our fingertips. But the challenge, on the other hand, about the public-private partnership in cyber, where most of the targets tend to be on the private end, and that challenge brought in when it comes to everyone kind of hesitant to want to work with the government because of privacy issues, because of stockbroker taxpayer issues when it comes to target gets hacked. They don't necessarily want that to become public knowledge. They could easily come to Cyber Command and say, help us out, but they don't always do that. Well, first, as a commander of Cyber Command, who is an organization tasked with one of its three primary responsibilities, defending the networks and the, the, the data and the, and the weapon system and platforms of the DOD, I never really felt that most of the activity was directed. Oh, well, I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> you probably were busy to focus on that. I found us pretty busy. <laughs> Around the clock, seven days a week, every day of the year. Um, but I, I think it does highlight, you know, as I left government, I had two kind of macro concerns. One was, how are we going to be able to work in competition in the gray zone where nation states want to gain advantage against us, but they don't want to do it at a level that leads to outright confrontation and armed conflict because they know, hey, that plays to the United States' mm -hmm. strengths 
And while it may take a long time, it may be painful with significant loss. In the end, if we commit as a nation to achieving an outcome, we're going to win. I just have always believed that, and I always believed as serving as a serving officer for 37 years, you know, we'll win in the end. We will achieve the outcome that we're directed to achieve. Now, it may be hard and it may take a long time, but we'll do it. The second area that, that concerned me, and it really goes to your question, is so what does security mean in the digital age? And how can we create a different public-private dynamic? Mm -hmm. Because my concern is, traditionally in our society, as a representative democracy in a capitalistic nation, we argued, hey, look, you leave the private sector alone, you let it compete head-to-head -head against competitors, and it will, it will win because the power of its innovation, the power of the capitalistic model, and the tenets of our society, which maximize the rights of the individual, those are all powerful advantages that will generate economic advantage for us, or will outcompete them, whoever they are. Um, I, I certainly understand that, but I have always come to believe, well, that's predicated on an equal playing field. Right. What happens for those companies when the playing field isn't equal? When your competitor is not just a company, but it's an extension of a government, a government that is using the full range of its capabilities from its espionage capability to penetrate foreign networks, to steal intellectual property, and then to provide that property, that knowledge, that technical capability to, the, to its own private sector. So they save you know, potentially years, if not decades, of development. Right. They save billions of dollars in research and development money tied with that nation state who not only is stealing data and then sharing it with their private sector, but is also saying, so uh, how do I use my educational institutions? How do I use my national research and laboratory structure? How do I use my citizens who are students in other places? How can I kind of look at that as an integrated strategy, if you will, that helps me generate advantage in a way that we just don't do in the United States? Right. And I think one of our challenges in this world that we find ourselves in now is we got to step back and ask ourselves, so what is the appropriate role for government and for the private sector? Put another way, in the much narrower field of cyber defense, I, I and others would often argue, so you tell me how you expect a private company to stand up to a focused effort by a nation state to penetrate its network, to steal its data, and to potentially, potentially manipulate degrade, deny, or destroy its data or its capabilities as an organization. I don't think companies can stand yeah. up <laughs> to the Russians, to the Chinese all by themselves. Do people? Do you think enough people understand that what makes America strong is our economy in many respects, and these private companies make up that economy? So that if, you know, a lot of people, oh, it's just Target getting hacked, or it's just Sony Pictures, or it's just, you know, this company or that company. But that's that provides the money for our military, that drives our economy, that drives national security concerns. And it's not a public-private separation, it's public and private in the United States. Even yes, we are a capitalist system, one fuels the other and vice versa. Yeah, I think it's true. I, I, let me riff on that just a minute. Mm. I, I always told people I believe we have three foundational underpinnings that make America what it is, um, that give us really, that have created this top economy in the world that has fueled the ability to sustain this tremendous military. 
that have created a beacon where, quite frankly, people from all over the world want to come here. They want to be part of our society. They want to live here. They want to raise their children, create a family, build a future for themselves, get a job that enables them to achieve their goals, not the, not the government's goals, their goals. Mm-hmm. Um, those three things always, for me, were our values and our legal structure is embodied really in the Constitution. What a powerful document. I mean, it is amazing. Secondly, those alliances and relationships we have created around the world, where we have a series of global partners that nobody else, if you look at some of our competitors, they don't enjoy that. They don't have that going for them. Some view that as a negative. Hey, that's a drag. It costs us. My attitude would be quite the opposite. Mm. It's a positive for us. It gives us strategic agility. It gives us opportunity that our competitors don't, don't enjoy. It's an advantage to us. Don't blow that. Right. And then the third area is our economic competitiveness. It's those three things, the values that we behold as a nation that are really embodied in that document, the Constitution, these series of partnerships and alliances we've created in the world that gives us this amazing strategic flexibility and enable us to very quickly work with others to deal with situations around the world. And thirdly, this economic engine that fuels this. If it wasn't for that economic engine, we couldn't afford that military. We couldn't have sustained this military for so many years in a way that no other nation in the world has been able to do. Um, I, I think that's a real positive for us. And that doesn't mean that my attitude is, well, it's all about the military. It's all about being the largest thing we can be. That's not what I'm saying. The military is a component of a broader set of capabilities that have enabled America to do great things for the world around us. But also, we have to acknowledge, sustain a preeminent role. That preeminent role, I think, has done good things for the broader world that we're a part of. It has given us great advantage. It has helped to ensure a good standard of living, a rising standard of living, the freedom and the ability, you wanna go out and buy a house, you wanna start a business, you wanna educate yourself or educate your family, you wanna get married, you wanna practice the faith that you believe in, you want to execute the sexual orientation that you were born with. Those are powerful things, that's what makes us what we are. And I was always interested, and as a military leader, I would always think to myself, don't do anything that undermines that, don't do anything that undercuts that, because that's our strength, and the military is just one piece of something much bigger. Well, all of those are our strengths. So look at that. You, you know. got a little philosophy. No, no, no that's huh? great. No, I, let me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap up by actually making you do more philosophy. And I want to <laughs> ask you. <laughs> I wouldn't wish that on anyone. All, all of your, all the strengths that you just pointed out are, are obviously keys. They have been since the very founding of this country. In the cyber realm and what we're seeing, is democracy particularly vulnerable to what we saw in 2016, what we saw in France when the, the last election in France you know, this isn't all technical. Maybe we're too fixated on the technical side in this because a lot of it's social engineering. You know, no one needed to hack anything to convince people that Comet Ping Pong had a sex slave ring in the basement. No one needed to hack anyone to put fake stories on Facebook. But there is an element to this that's cyber. There's an element to this that is technical. And we are particularly, I would argue, vulnerable as a democracy. And autocracy doesn't worry about these problems. Russia is limiting what its public can actually see. Fake news doesn't exist there because the government doesn't allow it to get out to its people. Is there this interesting balancing that we need to find in a democracy between having these freedoms that are enshrined in the Constitution and not opening ourselves up to have another repeat of 2016? 
So there shouldn't, number one, there shouldn't be any doubt in anybody's mind. If we have the choice between being an authoritarian well, state yes. or being a representative of democracy, the representative of democracy wins every time. Look, it, it's the model that we all ought to continue to strive for, and it has stood us in great stead. That is what has created these things that we talked about earlier in our time together today. That's what's given us our preeminence in many ways, even as we acknowledge we're one nation among memory and we want to support our friends and allies. By the same token, you also have to acknowledge in the short term in many ways, the authoritarian state has a little more flexibility, a little more speed, a little easier. It goes back also to the point we were talking about a few moments ago about, so in this digital age, what's the role of the government versus Mm -hmm. what's the role of the private sector? An authoritarian state, they often blur together. There is no real line. In our society, there has always been a distinct line between what is the role of the government and what is the role of the private sector. That has been a strength for us, but I do think we need to step back and ask ourselves, in the world that we're living in today and the world that we see in the next decade or more, what's the right structure? What's the right balance? What's the appropriate role? Um, Because there are some areas where the authoritarian state has a near-term advantage Mm -hmm. that they, they can exploit. Now, in, in fairness, I don't know if fairness is the right word, but you have to acknowledge you look at the Russian activity that we've observed both to attempt to influence the elections in 2016, but also to attempt to undermine our democratic institutions, right. to attempt to undermine um, us as a nation, to preclude our ability to achieve a cohesion around particular issues. They didn't create these tensions. They didn't create these significant differences. They didn't create this current um, kind of atmosphere of intolerance. Yeah, or the key to psyops is find the weakness that's I'm already there and, and go after it. Yeah. They have merely exacerbated yeah. and poured gasoline on that which is already present in our yeah. society. So, you know, there, we have a role here as a society to ask ourselves, what do we need to do to come together? What do we need to do to achieve consensus? What do we need to do to be able to address tough issues? What do we need to do to come together in a way that helps generate outcomes that not only benefit our nation and as well as our friends and allies, but also ensure the ability of that nation to uh, sustain the kind of role we've played, the kind of level of um, wealth as a society. We need to sustain that over time. That, that you know, I, I always thought if in a microcosm of that, in some ways as the director of NSA and as the commander of Cyber Command, I always thought to myself, your job is not only to achieve the mission today, your job is to make sure that whoever comes in behind you or after them has, is in a position to achieve it five, 10 years from now. It's one of the reasons why I was a big proponent at NSA. We went through the largest restructure and reorganization we had literally had in 20 years mm-hmm. because I said, it's not enough that we've got this great level of excellence today, that we're able to do these amazing things in the service of our nation. I want to make sure we're able to do this 10 years right. from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now. And if we keep just doing the same thing, look at the rate of change in the world around us, I'm not so sure if we keep doing the same thing, we're going to be able to say, loyal, look how excellent we are. Look at what we're right. able to do. Well, there's certainly an adversary, one of them at least, that looks decades and centuries ahead that yep. might have a little more of a longer view than we have had in the past. Which is another advantage. It, that yeah. is not traditionally a great strength for us. It's not yeah. something we tend to, to focus on. The ability to sustain long-term effort has not traditionally uh, been a core strength in many ways for us as a right. nation. Um, and you see that in Afghanistan. Look, we're in the middle of our longest sustained 
you know, ground combat environment in our 240 plus history as a nation in Afghanistan. Yeah. You know, and it's easy to forget what's going on out there, but we've got men and women in harm's way trying to serve the nation, trying to help create a, a, a greater world and a stronger Afghanistan that will not allow the conditions that existed back in the 90s that led to ultimately the ability of al-Qaeda and other groups to create and sustain a haven that enabled them to plan 9-11. We don't want that. Right. So you've, you've been out of government now for a little less than a year. Um, you're clearly not shaving for the first time in 40 years. <laughs> you got a nice little beard going. So you're enjoying your retirement. What What's next for Mike Rogers? Because you're you're pretty young. You've got a decades in front of you. Yeah, I've, I've got about a decade of stuff I want to do in this next phase. Uh, first, I actually had a beard as a naval officer. Uh, we actually allowed beards in the United States Navy until January the 1st, 1985. Not that I remember that, but I had a beard at the time, and I can still remember having to shave it. I was on leave at the time. I think I shaved it off like the 3rd of January, 1986, but I can remember how pissed I was. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe we're doing away with this. And so I told myself, hey, I have no clue if I'll keep it, but when I retire, I'm going to grow yeah. a beard again just because I can. Although I don't think Mrs. Rogers is too keen on it, to be, to be honest. She's being polite since you spent 30 years right. She's fighting nice at 5 a.m. and shaving. She's always this yeah. warm, loving person, much better than I deserve, so I'm very fortunate in that regard. Um, but in, in terms of as I'm you know, looking at the future, I, I, I'm very energized by the future. I'm, uh, hopefully you can tell I am happy, I am yeah. relaxed, I love what I'm doing as I, you know, tell some of my peers, literally for only the second time in your adult life, as you transition from service in the military, you will have the chance to decide what it is you want to be and what you want to do. You get that opportunity very few times right. in life. For me, I only had it once before as a 21-year-old where I, you know, had the opportunity to say, okay, so do you want to do this Navy thing or not? Now, for me, I always knew, as I said earlier, I always knew that's what I wanted to do. But the flip side now as an individual in their 50s, for only the second time in my life, I'm stepping back saying, so Mike, what is it you want to do? What Your is resume is a little better than it was when you were 21. Uh, yes. And I am energized by the possibility. Yeah. I, I really, but many of the tenets that have shaped the last 37 years shaped the next decade for me. I love being part of teams. I love focusing on outcomes. I love trying to develop and mentor men and women. It's probably one of the things that brought me to the Navy in the first place. It's one of the things that I really um, look forward to in this life that I'm leading now. I just get to do it with a broader set of people now in the private sector mm -hmm. who are every bit as motivated, every bit as technically capable, and um, are in a culture that seems to embrace the idea of change. Because remember, the price of failure for them is they go out of business. Right. DOD is not going out of business. Yeah. Uh, does, doesn't mean there aren't implications that are significant for failure. I don't want, don't want to imply that, but there's always going to be a Navy. There's always going to be an, ent an entity, a Department of Defense. The name could change, but that's focused on defending the, this nation. Private sector is a little different world. Right. They're under a different set of competing circumstances, and it just makes for a, an interesting culture. I really enjoy that. I'm spending some time out in Silicon Valley. Really love you know, working with teams out there, and I'm just energized. Well, best of luck in the thank future. You. Admiral Rogers, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here can, today. Can I say one last of thing? Of course. You know, to the men and women who continue to serve today, or if you're just a young individual and you're thinking about, so what, what might I do in intelligence? And is this intelligence discipline something that I would be interested in? 
for those of you contemplating a potential career, or even if you just do it for a while, I think you will be incredibly fulfilled by the chance to use your knowledge and insight to generate understanding of what is going on in the world around us and to use that understanding to help inform policymakers and operational commanders. That is a great calling. And whether you do it in uniform or you do it as a civilian, our nation needs you. And I would encourage you, if you're considering that, there's a lot of opportunity. Please come join the team and feel free to be a part of the government. You know, working for the government is not a bad thing. And I, I remember, I also remind, look, governments are not about individuals. They're not about particular parties. As an intelligence professional, you serve within that document, the framework of that document, that constitution. You're about generating insights to help defend our nation and to do it in a legal framework that ensures the protection of the rights of our citizens. And we've got protections in place to ensure that and no one single individual, no one single party is going to trample that. Um, if you are in the profession today, I want to thank you for your continued willingness to be part of the team. Whether you do it for some small number of years or, you know, like me or others, you spend much of your adult life doing it. I, I just want to say thanks. You know, the thing I'm proudest of is I look back over 37 years, I did something that I thought mattered. I did something that I thought was relevant, but most importantly, I did it with men and women that I really respected, that I looked forward to going to work every day. I walked into that wherever I was, if I was out at Fort Meade, if I was on a ship or on a submarine in my career or on a staff somewhere, I was pumped every day because I could always say to myself, you know, I'm gonna, today I'm working with men and women I like being around. And no matter how bad, how tough things get, no matter how far away I'm from home, and no matter how long the hours are and how tired I feel um, and how I wish sometimes I was just at home with my wife and our two sons, the thing that kept me going aside from the mission was, hey, how lucky am I that I get to work with men and women like this? And you can't put a price on that. And I just want to say to all of you that are in the profession doing the job today, thank you for your service and thank you for letting me be a part of your team. And I wish you only the best. Well, thank you, Admiral Rogers. We appreciate you taking the time at SpyCats. We'll, we'll have you back in a little while. We can chat a little bit more. We barely touched the surface of everything that you've done, so we really appreciate your time. Thanks, Vince. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTLSpyCast. That's INTLSpyCast. Talk to you next week.